Hello and welcome to ADHD Love Parent Talk, episode 28. I think it breaks my heart. I was a school teacher for many years and it breaks my heart that in school we don't really learn a lot of this stuff. Like there's like one math class that teaches you this, but most people just didn't get that information. And if your parents didn't know and they didn't teach you, how else are you going to learn? Like you just don't know. But it is a totally learnable skill. Like you can learn how to be good with money. It's not easy and it's not always fun, but what boils down the difference between rich people and poor people is that rich people have money. So you have to spend less money than you bring in. That's the basis of growing your money is spending less than you brought in. Hello and welcome to the ADHD Love Parent Talk podcast. If you felt like you have been walking your path alone as an adult with ADHD or as a parent with children with ADHD, you are finally home. I interview parents and professionals, including doctors, coaches, educators, and so much more so you can not only learn more information about ADHD, I also want you to have tools that you can put in your toolbox as you are going through your journey. Hey, my ADHD family, welcome to another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk, where we talk about all things ADHD. I have my guest today, Patricia. She actually was on one of my first or earlier episodes on Instagram, and so I'm very excited about having her back today. And we're going to hear a little bit about her story, and then we're going to also get into managing money. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So hey, Patricia, how are you? I am great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, doing fantastic. Honestly, I've, I've been really not sleeping very well lately. It's been the craziest thing, and I'm usually a good at getting sleep, but maybe it's an ADHD thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you are lucky because most people that I talk to with ADHD do not have good sleep habits or just good sleep magical genes they inherited, so you're, oh. you're doing pretty well. Good, good. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then just talk about why you know so much about ADHD. Sure. So right now I am empowering moms who have ADHD themselves to live confidently and successfully through encouragement and relatable blunders and practical strategies that work for our unique and pretty amazing brains. And I just love talking about ADHD. I'm an ADHD advocate. I spent a lot of years in education and I love helping other people understand ADHD better because that allows one that we're not, you know, we're destigmatizing just the negative connotation that it's grown over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And when people understand it, then not only do they have a better life, but the people around them have better lives too, because it does permeate throughout your life. It doesn't just affect the person who has it. It affects the whole family. So I have a podcast for moms with ADHD called Motherhood and ADHD, where, you know, we talk about understanding our ADHD. How do we take care of ourselves well? How can we put tools and structure into our lives to create a really life, a quality motherhood that we're not doomed to be a hot mess. We can get off the hot mess express and figure out what works for us and feel successful and confident in what we do every day and Mm -hmm. enjoy our motherhood instead of just feel like we're flying by the seat of our pants, drowning in everyday life. And then like on a personal side, I am married to my husband for uh, 10 years now. We have two little boys. They're three and six. And I love learning about our brains. I love reading. 
I love traveling when we can travel and I love a good adventure. So I have inattentive ADHD. So I'm definitely more on the, you know, quieter introverted side, but I do love a good adrenaline rush. So if you're, you know, skydiving, sure, let's go. Let's give it a try. Um, and how do I know so much about ADHD? Well, I mean, I've known that I've had it for 20 years, so I have had plenty of time to figure it out. And I was like, diagnosed in college, so I think it was around like my sophomore year, so it was like 1920-ish. And um, it's a total surprise. I was falling apart, and my doctor said, I think you have ADHD. So I was like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> um, you know, this is literally, it was like the year 2000. It just wasn't a thing back then, especially for girls. And so I had to do a lot of research, a lot of my own trial and error and struggling. And now that I have that knowledge base, I want to share it with other moms because um, it takes a village. And part of that village is people who understand what you're going through. And I want to be part of that for, for other moms. So hand up, hand down. I've got lots of people who have helped me along the way and I want to help other moms as well. That is so cool. So when you got in college, you said you started to, you know, break down. So what signs did you see that was different than what you saw growing up in grade school? I mean, I was the same person. To me, the difference was when you're younger, you go to school, you have a very set structure you arrive at school at the beginning of the day, they tell you where to go, first period, second period, third period, they run your day for you, right? And when you get to college, then it's, okay, well, you have this 10 a.m. class these days a week, and you have this two o'clock class, but on a different day week, and you're the one who's responsible for doing all the reading in between, you're the one who has to get to class, you're the one who has to keep track of all the different things, and no one else has the same schedule as you. So it's not like you can, you know, buddy up quite as easily. I mean, you can, but it's a lot more effort because you're budding up for each class. I mean, it was just the, the executive functioning load is so much higher in university compared to when you're in high school and you just, you know, follow your marching orders. Um, so yeah, I don't, when I look at me, you know, you can look at my report cards and see all the little red flags along the way that no one really put together. But the difference was that executive functioning responsibility fell on me. And even though if you had asked me, I would have told you I was ready. Mm. But because I didn't know I had ADHD, I didn't really know what I was myself into. Like, I didn't know what was going to be required of me. So while I thought I was ready, I was an extremely responsible child. I'm the oldest child. I'm an Enneagram one, if you're familiar with that. Like, I am like the uber organized, very responsible, like poster child of responsibility. And so I would have told you I'm ready. Let's go. And I, I mean, I started college at 17. So I was very like, go get them. But I didn't realize all that structure that was in place for me was what was holding me together. Obviously I can look back now at 2020, but at the time I had no idea. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I also started college at 17. And as you know, I was recently diagnosed. And mm -hmm. if it wasn't for my parents and them really understanding the things that I needed and putting helping me helping me to put structure in place, because I completely, completely give my parents credit for helping me put all those things in place, I wouldn't have gotten through college the way that I did. And so yeah, I, I can completely understand 
what you were going through at that time. It's like, oh my goodness, there's just, it, it was so overwhelming. I'm completely responsible for myself. And honestly, if it wasn't for me having, like I said, that pat, that structure that I used, but also a group of people that I leaned on sometimes as my, what we call today, like body doubling, you know, mm-hmm. that has been so beneficial for me. So for you, what were some of those other things that she put in place once you knew you had ADHD? What were some of those things that you put in place to help you outside of the structure that you already naturally had? Well, I mean, I'll be honest, I was a hot mess for quite some time before I figured it out. Because I mean, if you think back 20 years ago, like there just weren't the resources out there. You couldn't go on Instagram and learn about ADHD from a whole bunch of people. Like Facebook didn't even exist back then. I know it makes me feel really old when I say things like that. Like I was in college in the days of Napster. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> yeah, I do. But um, like the internet is not what it is today. There wasn't that. So I was very, very blessed that when I got referred to the student health center, I'm sorry, student service. Okay. I was at the student health center. My doctor referred me to the student services center. And there is where I saw the psychiatrist who diagnosed me. And I was like, just like by the grace of God, there was a student doing her master's thesis on ADHD and learning differences. And so I got to be her test subject and she put me through this huge battery of tests. And I learned a lot about my brain in that, like, I mean, literally it was like hours. I think it was like eight hours of testing that she did with me. I learned so much about my brain. And that's when I started to understand like my like short-term working memory, like recall is very low. Um, and I actually tested at the level of a third grader mm-hmm. when I was, um, you know, a sophomore in college. And as I could start to see like, okay, this was like validation of, okay, um, and I'm not making it up in my head, like these are hard for me. But this young lady was friends with a lady who was in law school. I say lady because they were so much older than me then, but like they probably were only like four or five years older than me. But grown-ups. And this law student took me under her wing and showed me how to study, mm-hmm. showed me how using white noise. I mean, this is in the, okay, I had a Walkman with my cassette tape of white noise that I would play with my like dollar headphones to drown out the noise. And I would go study with her in the law library because it was way quieter. Like if I went to the regular library, even though it was the library, it still was like, hey, hey, what do you, you know, it was not really good for quiet. So I would go with her to the law library where they were serious about studying over there. You did not make a peep. And I put on my headphones and I would sit next to her and I could actually focus when I had like tuned out everything else and like zeroed in, it was like mind blowing. I was like, what is this magical cassette tape you have given me? (laughs) Um, And things like, she taught me like how to take notes, how to read the text for what mattered, how to like, when I was listening to an instructor, like I would a lot of times record people. And again, this was back on like a, one of those like handheld dictaphone kind of things. Like I would record the conversation in class so that I could go back and listen to it again and take better notes. And I started to learn how to figure out what classes did I really need to take that detailed level of notes in and what classes were I okay in just listening to the professor and catching what I could. Because 
even the simplest things as like understanding how professors function and knowing this professor is primarily going to go on the book. This professor is primarily going to go on, you know, what they said in class. This one's 50-50. If you don't show up for class in this one, you're never going to pass the test because she covers too much there for you to just keep up with the reading. I mean, it's like learning all those like fine-tuned skills made a huge difference. But I mean, I really didn't, I wouldn't say that I did really well in school. Like even though I graduated like an honor roll, NHS, natural honors, national honor society. Right. And I did all that when I got to college, like my goal was just to graduate. Like, can I please get this piece of paper? And a lot of ADHD women that I've talked to want to have a 4.0 or it's not worth doing. And realistically, once you graduate, and you get your first job, nobody cares what your GPA was. Like three jobs down the road, nobody's asking you what your GPA was. So it doesn't really matter that much. Like, did you get your piece of paper? <laughs> did you get what you need to know? Like, I, I think a lot of times we, we get so focused on that perfectionism and wanting it to be like this glorious example, and we miss the point. The point is to get the paper and graduate so that you can get your job, not have, you know, above a 3.9. I get it. I get it. So do you talk to your family? So now many years later, you have a family. Do you talk to your family quite a bit about ADHD? I mean, I know your kids are young, but at least with your older one, do you start having the conversation or not really? Or do you talk to your husband about it quite a bit or how does that yeah, go? Yeah, I mean, my husband for sure, because he gets the, you know, the brunt of my um, differences, shall we say. <laughs> And I'm learning now to be better about explaining to him how I'm feeling because a lot of, again, a lot of ADHD women that I talk to is like, when my husband will be like, hey, could you do this for me? My response is, I don't want to do that. And so he thinks I just literally do not want to do that. And so now I've been explaining recently, like if he's asking me to make a phone call, he'll be like, hey, when you on your drive home, will you call this person? And now I've explained to him like me driving and talking on the phone at the same time about something that's important is not a good idea. If it's just chit chatting with a friend, sure. But if I need to recall information and remember, I need to ask these three questions and then I need to remember the three answers because I have to report back, like right when we're having some contractor things, like if I have to remember how much that bid was, you know, what it entails, what I need to return, you know, what forms I need to return. This like, I can't remember all that stuff. Yeah. And, and being safe is more important. So if I'm going to do that, like I need to be sitting at the kitchen table with a piece of paper and a pen. I need to write out all my questions ahead of time. Then I need to write notes as I talk to the person and say all the answers, because otherwise I don't remember. Mm. Because like going back, I have the short-term recall of a third grader. So I can't remember what they told me. That's why I write down, I take copious notes for everything because I can refer back to it. And then when I look at my notes, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 this is what happened. And I can then repeat the whole conversation because that note jogged my memory. But otherwise it's like, well, I don't know. So with him for sure, I've done a much better job of explaining why things are hard and why things are difficult and where I really struggle. With my kids, I haven't gotten too much into the like 
what ADHD is, but I do talk about like everyone learns different and, you know, we don't have to be perfect at everything because like my oldest one is a small carbon copy of myself and my youngest one is a small carbon copy of my sister and we are totally different. So we talk a lot about how everyone does things differently and being accepting and willing to work with people and their differences and being okay with that. So right now it's more like broad concepts. um, But realistically, I mean, when you have ADHD, there's a 50 to 70% chance that your child will have it. And obviously the more kids you have, the more likelihood there's somebody that's got it. I treat both my kids as if they do have it because I don't know for sure yet. We haven't gone through the diagnosis process and my guess is they probably both will. But, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when it, when it needs to be. But I, for now, I really just feel like it's important to talk about like honoring everyone and respecting everyone and not expecting people to be just like us. Yes. And if they don't, great. I'm like, whew, then they don't have to deal with that struggle. But realistically, they're going to have friends like that. They're going to have family like that. They have me. So I want them to understand that portion of how we're all different. So from your perspective, what would your tips be for someone who is struggling to have those conversations with friends or family or coworkers, just so people know what's going on with them? The first one is you have to feel safe and comfortable with that person. If you're going to share with them, if you don't feel safe with them, then you don't, you don't have to, like, you don't owe it to anybody. It's your business. If you don't want to tell them, that's fine. But if you do decide, yes, I want them to know, I think this is beneficial. You do want to be somebody that you're safe with, because if you're opening up and being vulnerable with somebody and then they come back at you in a way that's harsh it makes it hard to do it again and again. So we do need that judgment, which is hard. Again, that's something we're not very good at sometimes with ADHD is we just share and then we realize afterwards, oh, maybe I should have kept that to myself. So we do, as a general rule, women with ADHD have a pretty good BS meter and we can usually tell whether or not somebody is going to be receptive or not and whether they're a safe person. If you, you know, we do learn to distrust our gut after so many years of being told that we're too much or too this or too that, you usually know deep down. So if you start tuning into that like gut feeling of, is this person a safe person to go with? Can I share with them? That's, you know, kind of steps one and two together. But from there, it's just being honest and saying, hey, this is really hard for me because, and then giving them enough information that it's not just I don't want to, or a lot of times like we just feel scared and we don't know why. Yeah. And that's a lot of people with ADHD also have trouble identifying feelings, like specifically which feeling it is. Like we just know like that's a bad feeling and I don't know which one it is and I don't like it. It takes like some practice to figure out like, okay, what is it about that that makes me uncomfortable? Like when I talk about my adversity to phone calls in general, I don't like phone calls because it's all auditory. And that's my worst like language or what we call it my worst like learning language. Like I, I do better if I can see it. I do better if I can do it. So it's hard for me to absorb all that. But if I can explain to somebody, it's really hard for me 
to absorb all that information on the phone. So after we talk about it, I'm going to text you the three answers just to make sure I got it all down. Can you reply back to me and tell me whether or not that was right? So you don't even have to explain, I have a neurological medical condition, blah, blah, blah. Like you can just say, I get flustered on the phone sometimes because I, I have trouble keeping track of it all. Can you confirm this for me? Or, you know, like there's other ways you can ask for help without saying your whole life history. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think one of the, the issues are people are going to con- be, they're concerned of what people are going to think about them. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way to your point is just, first of all, be okay with asking again. Mm-hmm. Right. So do a lot of confirmations have to go into the deep, but just be okay with having somebody repeat it, having to repeat their name, having to repeat a certain topic. I mean, it, it's okay. One thing that I do let people know is yes, I've taken as many notes or I try to remember as much as possible. Can you just repeat this specific point? So they know that I wasn't just ignoring them. Right. right? But yeah, there are just many times where my mind just drifts. <laughs> And I'm like, um, can you just repeat that again? <laughs> right. And that's what are you, what are you said. Oh, like, you're like, I just confirmed back the part that I'm struggling on. It's like, I don't put the onus on the other person to do it all for me. Like, that's not kind or like respectful of me. I, you know, I need to still pull my weight. But asking for confirmation on something is right. a different level than can you write all that down for me and send it to me? Like, Yes, there are times when that is okay. Like if that's one of your employees, yeah, sure. Tell them to write it all down and send it to you. But, you know, if you're working with a peer or a friend on something, just to double check, like that's a normal human thing that people do is say, okay, I thought we heard, I heard this. Can we make sure we're on the same page? I mean, that's the whole point of like legal contracts is to make sure everybody's on the same page. So that is totally okay to do. Exactly, exactly. All right, so I want to switch over to finances. So why do you think we as ADHDers tend to struggle with finances? Oh, the list is long. <laughs> right. Uh, so what, I mean, first one is not understanding money. Anytime you're dealing with something that's new, it's scary. We don't get it and it can be overwhelming. So if you don't feel comfortable talking about money, if you don't feel comfortable, like you haven't learned a lot about it, you don't have someone who taught you about it in your life, it's a new topic. It's scary. We don't know it. So just that in and of itself, it doesn't even matter that it's money. It's like any topic that is new. Like imagine the first time you had your kid, you're like, what do I do with this thing? It was scary to become a parent for the first time because you didn't know what to expect. So it's the same thing with your money is that if every time you look at your bank account, you like, it's like with one eye open, like, oh no, what's it going to say? Like, yeah, you're going to feel scared (laughs) and overwhelmed every time you think about money. But when you look at like the big picture, it's things like money involves all of your executive functioning, which it involves a lot of juggling. So, you know, you're juggling things like all the different like bill categories and things being due at different times. Um, There's the issue of time blindness where we kind of live in either the now or the not now and spending money is now, which our brain is good at. We're good at now. Not now is what savings is for. And we're not good at not now because it's not now. 
So that whole like concept of time and like the thought of saving for retirement, it's like, that's like a million times away, like a million years away. Why would he even worry about that? That's so far away. But it sneak up on you real fast when you're 65 and real sad that you're still working. So like you, we do have to think about that not now. So we have to figure out a way to make the not now come into the present. Um, impulsivity, so just buying that cool thing because it looked cool and then realizing, oh, I still have to pay rent in two days. Um, object permanence, so just forgetting that we signed up for subscriptions that we don't even use anymore or you spend money because it's there in your account, so you think you have it, but you forget, like, I already signed up to pay my electricity and my phone bill, and it's coming out tomorrow, and I already spent that money. And I think the important thing to go back to, though, is managing your money is the skill, and skills can be learned. Like, I can't help you be more tall, because being tall is not a skill. Either you are or you aren't. But learning to make different choices with your money is a skill that you can learn, you can practice, you can figure it out, and you can understand what your motivation is for choosing what you want to spend your money on. And then it makes it easier to make those choices because you understand why. With ADHD, if you don't understand why you don't have your motivation, it's not happening. It just, it doesn't matter to us. So if you've thought about your money and why you chose to have the budget that you did and why you're saving for this thing over here. It's so much more likely to happen. But usually what we do is we just decide, I'm just not going to spend money on anything. I'm going to put all my money towards this. And it's not a realistic goal. It's not a realistic plan. We only took like step one and managing your money is like a 50 step process. And that's overwhelming. It's a lot of things to keep up with. But Again, once you get familiar with it and you practice, it gets easier as you go. So let's dig into, so one term you just mentioned was budget. So what is a budget and what do you have, or what suggestions do you have to help them keep a budget? So a budget is like when you boil it down, it's just a plan for your money. Like in the big picture, it's a tool that you're using to be successful in the way that you have deemed you want, like that's where you want to go. It's for your happiness. The tool is for you to have less stress. A lot of people look at their budget like it's controlling them and they're so restricted by it. But I'm like, you control the budget. The budget doesn't control you, you made it. Like you are the creator of the budget. So it's not this horrible thing that's looming over you being like, you can't spend any money. That's not what the budget is. The budget is, you setting out like a roadmap of here's where I want to go and here's how I'm going to get there. And it's all up to you. So it doesn't have to be this like evil being, you know, constricting your life and no fun now. And if you like really want to dive into it, I have a whole episode on the podcast. It's number 31 of like how to make it and all that. But it boils down to like, where do you want to go? Do you want to save for a house? Do you want to pay off your debt? Do you want to save for retirement? Do you want to do all those things? And then, you know, ranking them in order and figuring out what's your plan to get there. The budget is just a tool for you to be happy, you to be successful, to you for you to be less stressed out. I like that. And it's amazing how long it took me <laughs> 
to really get a budget together. And when I say long, it took me years. My father introduced me to a budget when I was in college. And mm -hmm. I swear, probably in my 30s is when I finally was able to do a budget correctly. And part of it was, to your point, I would, oh, I can spend just a little bit extra. You know, it's no problem. And I'll just take it out over here, but not physically take it out, right? And it's like, oh yeah, I still have money in there. Wait a minute, do I actually have money in that or not? I mean, I was horrible, horrible. But now, I mean, that budget has really helped me have, do some of the fun things that I need to do while I have to do the things, pay for the things I have to pay for. So it's been so much better. Yeah, and it's, it's really about you feeling better. Like, for you to not be stressed out. Exactly. It's not there to, like, be this, like, horrible thing. You know, like, it's supposed to make your life better, not worse. Exactly. So. No, that's exactly right. So um, one of the things I hear a lot about is emergency funds. So what is an emergency fund, and is it important to have? I think everyone should have an emergency fund and generally the rules like six months okay. of an emergency fund in the, given the times that we've been in, in the last couple of months, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, there might be some people who would prefer to have a year because it's just been, you know, a rough go of it. But basically an emergency fund is you have enough money set aside that you could live for that amount of time. Like if you lost your job tomorrow, how long can you make it? not changing anything about your lifestyle. How long could you make it before you had to have money coming in again? Which for some people, the answer is, I can't. And I'm like, ooh, that is a stressful place to be. And I mean, I have been there. It is hard when you're living paycheck to paycheck. It is stressful. It is rough. It is. And so having that there, it's just this like little cushion of, if something bad happens, I don't have to be super stressed out because I know I have this little cushion here that I can rest my head on and I'll be okay for whatever the set amount of time is. Now, keep in mind, if you have a six-month emergency fund for where you're living right now, you could decrease your expenses and make that stretch longer. But realistically, we're humans and when, like, when we have a job loss, our usually our first thought isn't, oh, let me go cancel my Hulu account. Like we're worried about a lot of other stuff and it's not all these little ways that we could decrease our budget mm -hmm. categories and our expenditures. So yes, that can be done, but you want to have enough there that you can function comfortably. Like I'm not saying like we're living luxurious lifestyles, we're probably not going on vacation, but can you be comfortable for enough time to then get another job. That's really what it's there for, is to protect you in those emergencies. And when you say one month, it's one month of pay times six months worth, right? right. And just- Well, it's ahead. one month of your expenses. Oh, one month of like your- all, Every money, like all the money you would spend in the month of say uh, like uh, January. Okay. If that's $2,000 that you, are paying everybody that and that's literally everything so your rent your all your bills kids clothes stuff at school the whole shebang like literally every penny you have spent in january and if you multiply that by six that you could function at the same level for six months okay that makes perfect sense so how should people treat debt like credit cards or mortgage should they pay it in a steady way or should they pay it down quickly? Everybody has a different view on that. Yeah. 
there's different kinds of debt. So you have good debt and you have bad debt. And I mean, they're called like good and bad, but the bottom line is, is this debt building you wealth or is it just spending money? So as an example, if you have an investment property and you're paying into that or even your own home, as you put money into that, in theory, your house is increasing in value. So all the money that you're putting into the house, you would get back if you were to sell it. And hopefully you live in an area where the values are going up, maybe not crazy, but like a little bit each year. Mm -hmm. And so if you're putting money into that, if you were to sell it, you would then get all that money back. That would be a good debt because you're, you would not, you're not losing anything, but also you're hopefully making some money on it. Okay. Bad debt is just, I borrowed money to buy something and I used it. <laughs> Most of stuff that we would take on, like on a credit card is usually bad debt. Right. So it's just spending money to live, to enjoy, to whatever it is. The reason you take on debt is to have the ability to pay it off over time. Let's just do like a super quick example. If you buy something for $500 and you put it on your credit card and say your interest rate is 20%. If you're paying $20 a month, and I'm using that as just kind of like a generic, like minimum payment amount, every card's different. But say you're doing that minimum payment, 20 bucks, it's gonna take you almost three years to pay back for that one thing. And then you're actually paying $650 for it because $150 is the interest, which is basically you're paying a convenience fee to borrow that money over time. So if it's, say the $500 is on like, new tires for your car. It's snow season. Like this is a safety issue. You've got to put new tires in the car. That might be worth spending that extra $150 in order to be able to buy the tires now instead of whenever you have the $500. So in that case, hey, maybe that's worth putting it on your credit card. But if it's an impulse purchase, like I really want a new surfboard and you're not like a professional surfboarder, then is that worth the extra $150? Like, would you still buy that thing if they told you it was going to be $650 instead of $500? Because like by comparison, if your interest rate on that same scenario is 28%, which most credit cards usually run in the high 20s, mid to high 20s, depending on, I mean, it's a little better right now because of the economic situation, but generally speaking, like in that upper 20 area. So like if your interest rate is 28%, that same $500 item at 20 bucks a month, you're now paying $300 in interest. So like, would you buy that thing if it was $800 and not $500? I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> but usually when we buy something, we don't think about that. We just put it on the card, we swipe and we move on. And we're like, I'll take care of that later. I'll worry about that later. So pulling it back around, if you have like this bad debt where it's just like, I spent things they really were not building me any wealth and it's just sitting there accumulating interest. You want to pay that down as fast as possible and you want to pay whatever interest rate is the highest. So you want to look at all of your debts. If you have four different cards and you know, the, your car loan and your house loan, like look at all of them together and figure out what has the highest interest rate. And you want to pay that one down first because you're paying the most money to borrow that money. So that's where you want to start. And then just pay as much as you can like whatever you can afford that month. If you can put an extra 30 bucks in, put an extra 30 bucks in. If you can put an extra $5 in, like pay it towards it. The, the more you pay, the less you are paying for it. And then 
when you finish paying off that debt, you want to roll that money into the next debt. So if you've been paying, say, like $100 on that card every month and you finally pay it off, our like human instinct is like, woohoo, I got an extra $100. No, take that $100, put it on the next highest interest rate and then pay that one off even faster. And that snowball effect, like you will end up paying off the like second, third, fourth one so much faster because you're used to living without that $100 every month. So just keep putting it towards your debt so that you can pay it down as quickly as possible. And then like side note, if you have like good debt, like your house, that's like a way more complicated answer. But basically you start looking at like your interest rates and like what you can invest versus your debt. And so like for most people, that's like way farther off. So like right now, pay off your credit cards, pay off your car, pay off your student loans, worry about all that first. And when you get to the point where you can be paying like extra towards your mortgage, then you know, do that. But generally speaking, your mortgage is going to be one of your lowest interest rates compared to your credit cards and student loans and all. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the things that I've run into recently, so, you know, I'm looking to buy in a house or buy a house for an investment property. And one of the things they look at is credit, right? And that goes for, if you're buying a house for yourself, that goes for some other um, situations too. And ironically, I got deemed for not having enough credit, even though I've had credit all my life, (laughs) but because I paid some things off completely, it was almost like a negative for me. So why does that happen? And how can you balance that with what you're talking about, trying to get that amount down, you know, at the same time? So So your credit score is a combination of like how long you've been borrowing money. So like, because basically what they're using your credit score is it's like a grading system of like, how likely are you going to pay this money back? If you you look like you are likely to pay it back, then one, you would even get the loan because if you don't look like you're going to pay it back, they're not going to give you any money. So that's like the threshold of just getting in the door of like, okay, you look responsible enough that you will pay this back. But then you also tend to get better interest rates, which means you're paying less money. Mm because you've shown that you are going to pay it back and you're going to pay it back on time. So when you look at your credit score, it's looking at how long have you been borrowing money? How much money do you have outstanding right now? Like how much money do you owe people currently? Like how much is the, like the payments? Because they know roughly like how much you make. Like if you make a loan, they're going to ask you what your income is. So they're going to look at like, okay, well you have at least this in minimum payments and you have this much money coming in. Can you even afford to pay this loan back? And they look at how, if you're paying things on time. Oh, and then they also calculate differently fixed debts versus revolving debts. So fixed debts are things where like you pay the same thing every month, like your car payment or your mortgage, your rent. And then, um, revolving payments are things that you fluctuate every month, like your credit cards. So yes, if you have no recent history, they're going to be like, we don't really know if you could pay this back. There's not enough information here. So if you've gotten to the point where you've paid all your debts down, what I recommend for people to do is to have a credit card that you will pay off every month. Mm. So you're still using that card every month but you never put on it what you can't pay back. Even if that means you're just putting like your automatic charges, like like your electricity bill and your phone bill, like the things that you're already normally going to pay, 
that shows that every month you owed somebody $100 or $200 and you paid it back every month. That's going to show them that, hey, over the last five years, I have paid on time these payments every month. That's why it dings you. So I would never recommend like, don't go out and get a loan just because you need some credit history. No, you can just use your credit card each month, but you have to pay it off every month. That's where they'll get you is if you're, you know, credit card, like, Ooh, it's like such a killer. Anytime people tell me they're carrying a credit card debt, I'm like, no, paid off, paid off. Like it is such an expensive, expensive extra freedom you have to, to use. So run, run far away from anything, <laughs> from carrying a credit card debt on uh, balance every month. So yeah, use the card, pay it off right away. And that way it shows you have a good history of paying, but you're not carrying that extra debt. Okay. I like that. I like that. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is retirement, right? So there are some mm-hmm. people who believe in 401ks or, you know, they're kind of getting away from a lot of companies are getting away from pension plans. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is having some type of retirement fund, depending on what your company offers, how important is that? And should people be investing in their future? I mean, that question right there gives the answer. Like, should you be investing in your future? Of course. That's like a no-brainer. You've got to do it. Now, what's going to make the best sense for you is obviously going to be up to the individual. It depends on, you know, what your employers offer, what your other choices are. And like I said, if you're, it's like this fine balance, you have to weigh each choice. And this is part of what makes it overwhelming when you have ADHD. It's like, I can put money towards my 401k or I could pay off this credit card debt. Well, if you're paying 30% interest on something, that's never, you're never going to make up for that in your retirement growth. But if you're paying maybe 7% on a student loan, over time, you may actually get better worth out of a retirement fund than the 7% because you're looking at the time value of money, which is very, very hard concept sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not sometimes, for a lot of people, like regular people too. Time value of money is like, what? But basically, the concept in its simplest form is when you put money away now in an investment and it starts growing, over time, when you're talking like 30, 40 years, it's worth so much more because it had all that time to grow. So there's no straightforward answer to say everybody should do this because obviously if there was, then everybody would just have that one thing and there would not be all this confusion. So when you're looking at your retirement options, obviously you're going to need to compare to whatever debts you have because there's no point in putting money away if you're spending a crazy amount of interest on something else. But when you're looking at all those retirement options, when you have ways that people are going to give you free money, you need to take it. So if your company offers a match on your 401k, they're literally offering you free money. So why would you, why, why would you not take the free money? But yet so many people will be like, oh, mm, nah, I don't need one of those. Like they are giving you free money, people. <laughs> Put your money in. So you want to read all that fine print. And if that's too much for you, there's somewhere at your company, there is somebody who can explain it to you. There is an HR person. And if they can't do it, like they can tell you who to talk to. Like there's somewhere you can ask someone to explain this to you in real people language. But 401k that has a free match, it literally is free money. So if your company says, we'll match you up to 
7% or 5%, you want to put that money in there because they're giving you free money, which means like if I put in $100, they put in $100. Or sometimes they'll match you half. Like you put in $100, we'll put in $50. But either way, like where else are you going to get a free $50? Yeah. Like that's nuts. So you want to take advantage of that. And then in terms of like if your company doesn't have any retirement things that they offer you, you can do that on your own at your bank and look at the IRAs. So there's some that are pre-tax and some that are post-tax. And the benefit there is that if you're doing something pre-tax, that means you get to put your money in and you're not giving any to Uncle Sam. So again, that's free money. If you're not paying, you know, it depends on your tax bracket, obviously, but like say your tax bracket's 18%, you just got a free 18% because you didn't have to give it to somebody else. So if you have that ability, like put as much as you can where you can get free money. Okay. I, like and I, say, I could talk about this all day, but I know, right? the simple <laughs> version is find out who's giving free money away and go put your money in with the free money. Um, you know, you want to be careful, obviously, where you're, you know, don't give it to, when you talk about like investments, like there's plenty of money plenty of people out there who will take your money and then run with it. But we're talking about like solid investment for retirement, like in terms of like 401ks and IRAs, like they're safe. You put it there, you forget about it. And then when you're 65, it has grown for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. All of a sudden you'd be like, what? Look at how much money is here. So if you can put a little bit at a time, right now it doesn't make as big of a difference because it's a small amount. But when you let it sit there and grow for 40 years, you know, if you're starting this at 25, right, that's a lot of money that you'll have when you go to retire. Yes. And what do you think about separate investments like putting your money in the stock market or putting your money into real estate? I mean, I know people sometimes do some type of supplemental on top of that. What do you think about those? So before you even worry about all that, you need to get your foundation solid. So when you talk about building wealth, think about like building a house. If you don't have a solid foundation, it doesn't matter what you put on top of it, it's going to crumble. So you need that solid foundation of not carrying credit card debt, not carrying your student loan debt. Get rid of all that stuff that's not serving you first, and then you can build on top of that. So you want, you know, have your emergency fund. Because if you say you have your money in real estate, and then you lose your job, it's not like you can turn around and sell that house like that. That's why you have your emergency fund there because that money is ready and available for you. So you want to have all that ready first. And then when you have all that done, then you want to look into building your wealth in like stocks and real estate because those two areas are things that people have their like full-time job in. They know that system well, they have spent years developing that skill set in order to do well in stocks or to do well in real estate. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go in with the big dogs, you better have your experience. Mm-hmm. That's not something that you can just jump in. And I see a lot of people who are like, I got a bonus and I'm going to go put it in the stock market. And I'm like, do you know what you're doing? Like there are like Wall Street sharks that have been doing this for 40 years and you're jumping in the pool with them. Like you can when you're ready, but like, can we put on our floaties and sit <laughs> in the shallow end first before we get in? So like, yes, you can get into that stuff, but you need to have your solid foundation and you need to have experience and research 
those areas because they are really complicated. And there's a lot of shows on HGTV that make real estate look really easy. Like I'm just going to buy this house and I'm going to flip it. I'm going to sell. It's going to be great. And like, I can tell you as somebody with rental properties, that makes it look very glamorous and it is not that great. It is a lot of work and it's a lot of heartache and it's a lot of learning curve. Not to say that you shouldn't do it ever, but you want to, you know, make sure that you have well seasoned yourself before you are ready to jump into the, the big leagues. That makes So more of the story. Pay off your debt, get your emergency fund, you do your free money 401ks and IRAs and all that good stuff. And then, invest then you can get into the other stuff. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good, Patricia. So is there anything that we haven't talked about or haven't covered around finances or ADHD that you would like to share? Any last minute thoughts? You know, if you're listening to all this and you're like, I want to know more, but it sounds like a lot. Like I have five episodes on the podcast all about money. I'll, I'll send you the, the links so that way you can put it in, you know, people can, don't have to like memorize this, but I have an episode on 24 is all about paying your bills on time, which is something with ADHD, we tend not to be very good at doing. So learning how to put you know, the structure in place and build the skills to be able to pay your bills on time because that's a huge factor in your credit score and also keeping your lights on. You got to pay the bill. Episode 22 is on savings, like how to even start saving. If you've not done it, like where do I start? Episode 23 is on how to not overdraw your bank account. I used to work at a bank as a branch manager. And so I've seen a lot of overdrawn bank accounts in my day. And there's a few things you can put in place to protect yourself from that because that can get very costly very quick because you get fees not only from the bank but then also from the whoever you were supposed to pay that didn't get their money it can add up quickly episode 31 is all about how to make a budget and episode 32 is all about um, evaluating your expenses and trying to figure out how can you cut what you don't really need and spend the money that on things that really matter to you and then for ADHD I have a download on my website it's free you can go in there, download it. It's um, all my favorite resources. So my favorite podcasts, my favorite books, my favorite Instagram accounts, like across the board, all my favorite things about ADHD. I love teaching people about it. So there's plenty of choices there. So, and it's patriciasung.com. Okay, perfect. And if they want to get a hold of you for any more questions, I mean, what is your Instagram handle and any other ways they can get a hold of you? Yeah. So my website's patriciasung.com and my handle on Instagram and pretty much everywhere if I'm there is at motherhood and ADHD. And I just want to encourage people to reach out. I love talking about this kind of stuff. I think you tell me, get a little excited over here. I think it breaks my heart. I was a school teacher for many years and it breaks my heart that in school, we don't really learn a lot of this stuff. Like there's like one math class that teaches you this, but most people just didn't get that information. And if your parents didn't know and they didn't teach you, how else are you going to learn? Like, you just don't know. But it is a totally learnable skill. Like, you can learn how to be good with money. It's not easy and it's not always fun. But what boils down the difference between rich people and poor people is that rich people have money. So you have to spend less money then you bring in. That's the basis of growing your money is spending less than you brought in. And it's not very glamorous, but 
it's totally learnable. You can learn how to do that. And yeah, the first couple of times when you're like, oh, I don't get to buy that. But you catch yourself and they're like, yeah, and I did it and I didn't buy that thing. <laughs> it is such a good feeling. So yeah, I just want to encourage everyone that like it is doable. You can do it. And I would love to help you. That's very awesome. And you know, one other thing to keep in mind is that it's never too late, right? So like I said, I started much later. I was laid off and, you know, had to go through divorce. So, you know, money left and right was just being pulled out. And even though I started much later in life, I still think I am on the right track. And so, you know, one of the things that I got was a a person that handles my stocks, right? They handle my Mm -hmm. traditional 401k and, and they put it in different types of stocks. And then I have a little bit of a stash where in my, my kids, you know, I invest for them and invest a little bit yeah. for me. I have my 401k. And so to your point, and then I'm, you know, my debt is almost gone, even though now I have a new debt because of me going back to school, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then but again, like that's good debt. That is, you know, technically like you're not, it's not like a house that you're going to resell, but like you're investing in yourself. That is a worthy way to spend your money. It doesn't, I think so many people think like, oh, like I just I shouldn't take on any debt. Like, no, like you are a worthy investment as a person. If that's going to get you where you want to be, like your hopes and your dreams, that is a great way to spend your money. Exactly. So no. go get them. Hey. Take on that debt. Because <laughs> so you'll be right. You'll pay it off. Like you, if you make a plan, you'll figure it out. And it's not too late. When If you're still alive, you still need money. Like money makes the world go round. So money does not buy happiness but a lack of money is going to create you a lot of hardship. So you want to have enough that you can be comfortable and be like less stressed. Like it's, yeah, like you're never going to be like stress-free. Even if you have a lot of money, you know, the old saying, more money, more problems. Like you, you're going to have more things to take care of, more investments to run, more expenses to pay. But it's never too late. You can always grow your wealth. You can always create that cushion. And when you learn those skills, you can then also help the people around you learn those skills. And like teaching our kids, like you said, like investing for them, explain to them, like, what does this mean? Like, we need to start talking about money with our kids way earlier than we do. And not using, you know, things like that's too expensive, but like explaining to them, like, here's what you have to do to get money. Here's how many hours mama has to work in order to buy that thing. Like having them understand the true value of money, you can start that when they're even like my kids age, like three and six, like that's something you can start when they're little is helping them understand money and how it is a tool that we control and that we use in order to grow. And exactly. But because we have that conversation so young, or I'm starting that conversation so young, it's funny. They don't have the same, how do I say this? Like need for it. Right. It's just a part of life. And when we want mm-hmm. to go buy something, we use our money, but there's not a need for it. So my kids have gift cards and cash for days that they don't use. Because they just don't have that same, like, I have money, I got to go spend it right now, right? It's kind of like, well, when I'm ready and or I'm saving up for X, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to spend it then. And that's kind of what I want to put in place early. And they talk about every once in a while, they'll bring up the stocks. So 
mommy, how much money do I have in my socks today? <laughs> you know, and that's what I want them to learn early. So yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a powerful thing. So. And I love that you said like you asked for help. You're like, I found someone to help me with this. Like there is always someone out there that knows more than you on something. And while I always caution people, like there are plenty of unscrupulous characters out there who will take your money and charge you too much for knowledge that's not really that great. You, know, you do need to carefully choose your help, but there's always help out there. And the more that you learn about it, and it's the same with your ADHD, the more that you learn about your ADHD, the more that you learn about your money, it's not scary anymore. And then, you know, you can figure out how to make it work for you instead of struggling and, you know, sitting there in your pity corner seeing how much everything stinks. Like knowledge is power. It is. It is. Well, thank you. This was awesome. This was really, really, really informational. So thank you so much, Patricia. I thank you for your time. Thanks for having me back. It's a great compliment when somebody says they want to talk to you twice. Absolutely. And about different topics. I'm going to think of some more. (laughs) Well, I like to talk. So (laughs) just let me know. That's too funny. All right. So everyone, that concludes another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. Everyone have a wonderful day. Bye, Patricia. Bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave a review and join me as I talk with another exciting guest next week. Have a wonderful day.